Well, good morning, Melanie Park. It's good to be home. Some of you may not know, but we lived here a long, long time. And uh, we've got three children, nine grandchildren. I think there's more to come. <laughs> Levi, many of you know Levi. Uh, little Ezra was born last year, and he's a hoot. But as you go through life, uh, if you're awake, after a while you, you realize that uh, the decisions we make, the friendships we have, the ministries we're in, the life we're in, uh, it, it gets to be very, very serious. As we speak, Israel is at war, and they're losing people. Uh, people in Gaza are dying. There's a group called ISIS, many of you have heard of them, who have made it illegal to be a Christian in Iraq. And uh, they're about seven, eight hours ahead of us, so they've pretty much gone through their day. But many, many thousands of Christians in Iraq are either leaving the country or being threatened with subjugation, uh, change face, and pay taxes or die. So the message this morning is actually out of 1 Kings. Uh, but it's a message to bring to our attention the seriousness of the body of Christ and that we literally are a band of brothers. Uh, there was a documentary that came out several years ago. It was, a, it was a film, one of the finest films on a certain group in World War II that uh, I've ever seen. It was about the 101st Airborne. Many in this room will remember them. But in the documentary, they were... Uh, said that they trained for two years for one specific day. And that day was uh, the invasion of uh, Normandy. They were supposed to drop down and uh, behind enemy lines to keep the soldiers from being flanked as they came ashore. And they were a tremendous, tremendous group of men. Um, they didn't all make it, but they were a very, very close-knit group. Some called them Easy Company. And they fought through Normandy, and they fought through Holland. They went into Germany, and supposedly, according to the documentary, they're the first ones into Hitler's eagle's nest. And as I watched that documentary and the uh, interpersonal relationships among the various actors that played the men and this and that, and what was going on, it made me think that uh, there was a tremendous encouragement amongst them. And I think too often we go through life and do not realize how much we need each other. And as I think of this, I think back to Elijah the prophet, who we're going to be studying today, just a little bit, just a few verses. But he desperately needed a band of brothers around him, and for much of his life, he didn't have it. Now that's good. Uh, can be good in a way, because as we go through various and sundry trials, as James says, we will go through, um, we can just give in to the tests, and we're still saved, and we'll still see the Lord, and we'll still go to heaven if we know him. But it's better to have an authority orientation that we get through God's word, and a grace orientation to understand how much it is he really loves us, and he's given us each other so that we might be encouraged as a band of brothers. Um, Elijah was a prophet. The prophet's basic job was to speak from God to men. Um, the priest's job in Israel was to speak on behalf of men to God. 
And there's a verse in Malachi 3.16. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it. Uh, there was a group in Israel towards the end of the, uh, about, I guess it's late 400s, early 400s. But they, they got it. And many in Israel were duplicitous in their relationship with the Lord. And many of them listened to him and followed him and loved him. And many did not. But towards the end of the Old Testament, it says here in Malachi 3.16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The idea is there they encouraged one another. They made a pact with each other. It's like Hebrews 10.24, you know, to uh, stimulate one another to love and good deeds, and even more as you see the day drawing near. And then it says, And the Lord gave attention and heard it. Well, what did he give attention to? What did he hear? Well, what we just read that those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. So the Lord pays attention, and it pleases him when we act in a unified sense as his children, children of the king, and we work with the sum of the body much, in a much more powerful way than just individualized all over the place. And then it says, And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. It's a great blessing to the Lord when his followers not only fear him and esteem his name, but encourage one another as a band of brothers. And I bring this up because Elijah, who was a man with a nature like ours, the Bible says, needed this encouragement at times in his life. And he despaired, he got depressed, he got suicidal, and he basically threw in the towel at times, ran and hid in a cave at after one of his biggest victories at, at Carmel, it just takes off and runs away from Jezebel. Uh, someday, all of us who know the Lord, which I assume is most of us, if not all of us in this room, will get to meet this famous prophet who had more ink written about him than any other prophet in the Old Testament, I think, besides Moses. So if we turn to 1 Kings, we can kind of look a little bit into this. Uh, I picked him as a prophet because the time in which he lived was a time much like our, our own, and Eliza's greatness was that he stood against a culture that had already given itself over to idolatry. Israel, as you know, had countless prophets with countless warnings, and this was the grace of God. God wanted the nation to be oriented towards his grace. You cannot love whom you do not trust entirely. So God wanted them to trust him and understand that this covenant that he had made with them was going to provide for their well-being. And if they walked with him, it was a no-lose situation. Um, but they kept on rebelling and not necessarily listening to the Lord. And so in Elijah's time, which was, uh, we're talking about mid-1800s, I guess, because he, the passage we're going to read is when Ahab was ruling, I think it was uh, 872 to 852, about just about 20 years span. But they were uh, infiltrated with idolatry, with moral relativism. They were worshiping at the altar of the Baals. The god Baal was a pagan god. It was a Canaanite god and surrounding peoples. And he was responsible for the weather, for rain, for dew, just kind of like a water god, thunder god. So that's important for the message. Uh, they were involved in sexual licentiousness, and the culture was basically imploding. Uh, what was right now was wrong. What used to be wrong now was right. 
And the voices that they were listening to was not the God's voice through the text, through the authoritative Torah that they had at the time and in a few other passages, but it was a very, very dark period of time in Israel's history, much like the times of the judges. Those of you who have studied the book of Judges know that there's kind of a couple repeated phrases going through that book, that every man was doing what was right in his own eyes and there was no king in the land. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but when it says there was no king in the land, well, where was God? Did God just kind of go off to Riodosa? No, he's still there. But when it says there was no king in the land, he's omnipresent, so he was there, but he wasn't being acknowledged. And what a dangerous, dangerous thing that is for people not to acknowledge God, especially those who are in a covenantal relationship with them. So, just like the judges, it's almost like deja vu, and Israel is reliving it again. And through God's grace, he brought, during the times of the judges, judges, and they would see the error of their ways. He'd warn them, they'd repent, get their act together for a few years, and then start the whole cycle again. There's seven cycles throughout judges. Well, in this particular time, they're in one of those cycles, except it's way hundreds of years down the line when they should have learned better. And it just kind of reminds me sometimes of how I am. I won't say you, but of how I am. And how I, we just, I get just caught up in this bubble of a world where all I see is, is a certain areas and don't realize that God has given me and our family many, many, many close friends for our encouragement. And whenever I can... He's given uh, our family many, many close friends that we might encourage you in certain areas. We are supposed to be a band of brothers. And we need each other more than we know. And times are getting very, very different than when I grew up. And I think of my grandkids. And I'm not going to go through all their names. We'd be over. But what will it be like if the Lord tarries when they grow up? Will the church still be strong? Uh, Will there be good teaching around? Will we even be here? Or if rapture happens, all the better. But we just live in serious times. Well, Elijah, he got so despondent after the great victory at Carmel that he did go into despair. He didn't have a band of brothers around him at that particular time. So the first thing we want to see is that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And as we come into... 1 Kings 17, chapter 17, 1. Um, we kind of find Elijah, it says Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead. That's Transjordan. That's on the eastern side of the Jordan. said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So the Lord had gone and told Elijah to give the nation a warning. And uh, they didn't repent, and now judgment has come. And when you go through the Torah, what you find is that there was five stages of discipline, and I've, I've shared this with us in the past, but they're probably in the third or fourth stage of discipline. If the nation didn't walk with the Lord, they go through stage one. He'd bring them a prophet and warn them, they didn't repent, they'd go through stage two. And sometimes this took 10, 20, 30 years. It wasn't like the very next day. And then stage three. They're about in that stage now. 
Now, this is the mid-1800s. About 70 to 100 years later, depending on which scholar you read, Assyria comes in and wipes out the nation. So they obviously kept going and went into stage four and stage, stage five. And stage five was when God brought in another nation and just took the nation out. So he marches into Ahab and he pronounces this judgment. And we're not told here, but in, first, uh, in James uh, 5.17, I think it says, he prayed that it would not rain for three to three and a half years, and it didn't. So basically what Elijah sees, and he's got a lot of hoodspin walking into the king's court, because for those of you who are familiar with Ahab, Ahab was one of the wickedest kings that uh, Israel ever had. He was supposedly, you know, at least in the people's eyes, a military genius, uh, had great uh, power politically speaking, but he was a wicked king. Um, So it seems like Israel at this particular time is in a hopeless situation. And one of the things we need to remember as believers is there are no hopeless situations. And we're going to see that in Elijah's life because I'm sure he felt like it was a hopeless situation which is about to happen to him. But as long as we are trusting in the Lord, and this sounds so Christian first day learning type thing, right? As soon as someone comes to Christ, well, what, is, what, is, what do I need to do? Well, you just need to trust in the Lord. And I say, okay, well, what's next? Um, I'm well, well over 60 now. There is no next. We spend the rest of our lives learning to trust the Lord. We go through the doctrine of the epistles. We understand and study the gospels. We look to the revelation and everything that's coming. We study the Hebrew scriptures and see what the different saints went to. But it's all geared to help mature us to understand the source of our comfort and our joy and our security. Most of us know, hopefully all of us know, it's not the government. (laughs) So we spend our entire lives learning this simple thing to trust the Lord. And that would get Elijah a long, long way. Whether it's a personal crisis, a health crisis, education, marriage, whatever it is, he's the one that we lean on. And if we're breathing, and I realize with a lot of young people here today, you're going to be breathing a long time. Some of us, we don't know. But if we're breathing, whether we're standing or in a hospital, if we're breathing, God has a plan for our lives. And if we are still on this, in this world, we have influence as people that house the very Spirit of God within us. Hard, hard concept. But as people who are the temple of God's Spirit, He's got something for us to do. And when He's done, we'll go home. Somehow, this Elijah seemed to understand this. Second thing we want to see is that when we do the right thing the right way, you know, you can do, there's the right thing to do and maybe you do it wrong. You do the right thing the wrong way. Or you know what's right and you just totally disregard it and that's wrong. But sometimes we know the right thing and we do it the right way and it doesn't always turn out like we think it would. And this is what Elijah did. God said, go in and do such and such. He went in and he did such and such. And now we see what happens to him. So sometimes when you do the right thing the right way, 
the consequences may not be what exactly we anticipated. Uh, He confronts Ahab. He does the right thing on the basis of what God told him to do. And he had no idea that shortly after that he's going to spend a prolonged period of time by himself in this crazy little stream with an unclean bird feeding him roguehill for the next year and a half to two years, or whatever it was the raven brought him. So, third thing we want to see is that Elijah's going to suffer with the nation. You remember when, um, well, in, in six, about a 120 years after this episode, uh, Assyria has already taken out the northern kingdom. Babylon comes in and takes out the southern kingdom. So the southern kingdom had roughly 70, 80, 90 years to look and see what happened to the northern kingdom. You would think they'd get the message. I would like to think we would say, okay, they didn't behave right, they didn't follow the Lord, we'll change. Well, the southern kingdom, it took a little longer, but they ended up going out too. And God in his grace took them out in three different ways. Nebuchadnezzar came in three times. And uh, I think it was 605, 592, and 586. But Daniel and his friends got taken out in the first group. There's a book in the Bible called the book of Daniel. Daniel was, relatively speaking, a very righteous person. Daniel walked with the Lord. He loved the Lord. He feared the Lord. And he was one of the first groups taken out because... He suffered by association with the nation of Israel. So, when a nation is under divine judgment, even believers who live godly, who live maturely, who try and make decisions based on right and proper counsel coming out from God's word, who look at life through the prism of the scripture, even they, we, will suffer by association. So, at this particular time, Elijah prays, and there's a spirit, because there's a spiritual drought, it causes physical drought. Verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that when you drink of the brook, and I have, let's see, it shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he, Elijah, went and did according to the word of the Lord. He first went into Ahab, which is a very scary situation. He told Ahab what would happen to the nation. It's going to happen very, very quickly. And then God tells Elijah what to do. He went and lived by the brook chair, verse 5, which is east of the Jordan. So that's kind of an uncomfortable zone even back then. Um, the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. I don't know where they got the bread. I don't know where they got the meat. But you can be assured it wasn't lox and bagels spread with the Philadelphia cream cheese. Uh, we might be able to say it was organic, but it probably wasn't his first choice. Now, did Elijah deserve this? Well, he was a sinner like everybody else. But he, he wasn't looking for this. He's just doing the bidding of the Lord. He did exactly what the Lord to, uh, told him to do. And now he's eating from this unkosher, dirty bird, according to the Torah. It's not me. And uh, it's probably just enough to keep him alive. 
It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now, there's no rain in the land because that's exactly what Elijah prayed for. And, of course, what it's all going to boil down to is there's going to be this show of force between the living God, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the true God, and this fantasy God that came from men's vain imaginations who was called Baal. So he goes in there. He's got chutzpah. He preaches to Ahab, and it starts coming true. He just bursts on the stage of history. There's no prelude. There's no intro. It's just kind of, he just suddenly shows up in the king's court, and then he just disappears just as quickly. Um, Now, what about this character Ahab? If we go to the chapter preceding this in 1625, just to show you who Ahab was, his father was named Omri. In 1 Kings 16.25 it says, Omri did evil on the side of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. So this is a couple hundred years after David. David united the kingdom. David was a great king. He had his slip-ups, but he repented and moved on. And God said that David was a man after his own heart. Uh, But it kind of all came apart after that. And the kingdom eventually splitted. And there was a bunch of really bad people in high positions in Israel. And Omri was one of them. Verse 26, For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, and in his sins, which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and his might, which he showed, are they not chronicled? Okay, we'll skip that. Let's see. Verse 28, So Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his son, became king in his place. Okay, so we're not going to go into all the detail about how that happened, but Omri was worse than all the kings before him. And then then verse 29, it says, Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years, roughly 872-852. Going over to verse 32, it says, So he erected an altar of Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Now here, you've got to realize, just read between the lines here. Here's this Jewish king. Uh, they have a covenant with the living God. And uh, they are supposed to honor God like no other nation. To this particular nation, God has given the priests, given the prophets, given kings that he's anointed personally, and given the scriptures, given the text, and they've copied it over and over and over and over again, meticulously, so that they knew the word. And yet you've got this Jewish king who's following a pagan god. God doesn't like that. It says, Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Abraham... Uh, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So Omri, his father, was one of the worst kings Israel ever had, and then Omri's son, Ahab, was even a worser king, I don't know if that's correct or not, than Omri. Now, to make matters even worse, if it could get any worse, uh, The job of a prophet was kind of like, uh, I I guess, a prosecuting attorney. 
Elijah, when he goes into Ahab's court, you would assume before this that the nation has had repeated warnings, and he basically stakes out a case against Israel. Now, what is the basis for his case? Well, the basis for his case was the Mosaic Covenant. The covenant was a contract, a constitution for the nation of Israel, and the preamble of this contract was, of course, the Ten Commandments, which the rest of the law is embedded in. So it really summarized the whole framework for legislation within the nation. In fact, uh, I guess you could say that the Judeo-Christian faith influenced the legal system of, of Europe, Western Europe, and even the United States to some extent. And so Israel had the scriptures. Israel had the voice of God. In fact, that's what the, the Hebrew word for prophet is, uh, navu, plural navi'im. It means God's mouthpiece. Israel, this one particular nation, had God's mouthpiece, and they had God's direct word, the true God, who created everything, speaking to them. And he gave them the structure by which they should live. It's called the Mosaic Law. And in this law, if they walked with him, they couldn't lose. But it was a structure for living, and if they didn't walk with him, they wouldn't win. The difference, of course, between Israel and every other nation is, Exodus 19 says that Israel was God's firstborn son. So, not all of Israel would be saved. It never has been. But there's always been a remnant. But as a nation, the way God looks at this nation, and as you look at the fighting overseas right now, do you ever wonder why they're still there? Because as he looks at this nation, he's made a covenant with them, and they will be there at the end. The believers, the remnant, will be there at the end. But the only reason they're still there now is because with every other nation, when they rebel... When they mock God, when they just get God out of the culture and society in which they live, God just lets them go. And you see, God doesn't have a covenant with America. A lot of people think they do. A lot of th people try and read things in to, you know, the wings of eagles and this and that. Say, well, we're in the Bible. I don't see us anywhere in the Bible. The only nations I see in the Bible are nations that had to do with ancient Israel and will have to do with Israel in the future, and they're named. So, God lets every other nation go their way. And see, that's a very scary thing. When God lets the other nations go that way. With Israel, he's going to give them a divine whooping until they repent and come back. Then they stray and he strikes them again and they come back over and over again. So, at this particular time, they had the contract. Elijah the prophet goes in as a, and as a prosecuting attorney, he states his case. This contract's been violated. Our nation has become pagan. And we've basically left the absolutes of Scripture. And when you leave the absolutes of Scripture, there's two results. And Israel was going through the first of these results. First result, when you go far enough, is anarchy. Anarchy results when every do everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Uh, everyone becomes a king unto, him unto himself, a Small g, God, so to speak. And when our anarchy arises, in order to avoid it, you need some strong individual, very strong, not necessarily righteous, usually not, to come along and take control of things. The only way to take control of things is through dictatorial maneuvering. 
and then from dictatorial maneuvering, what the nation gets, whatever society, culture, nation it is, is uh, tyranny. And then you have to be, that tyranny has to be governed by a tyrannical government. So you th see how cultural imploding, as we get away from God's absolutes and structure, it's, it's horrible. It's horrible for people, all people that God loves. So the prophet's job was to come in and aid the nation and point out its violations of law and call for them to uh, repent. And as the prophet came in and warned them, this was a vivid picture, a loving picture of God's grace. Well, do we have anything as great as the prophets today? Oh, we've got way, way, way better than the prophets. We've got this book. It's called the Bible. With all the prophets and their ministries in it. Then we've got the uh, Gospels in it. And then we've got the Epistles in it. And then unlike ancient Israel, who God just sent his spirit to come upon uh, the prophets, priests, and kings for ministry and then withdrew his spirit, it never indwelt them. It helped them. It was around them. But it never indwelt them. We have so much more. So, it is incumbent upon us, I believe, to realize what we've got. What the nation of Israel in Elijah's time didn't have. Let's see here. Well, let's just look at this. Why was he struggling? Uh, verse 7, it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. We covered that. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded, you, uh, commanded a widow there to provide for you. So Elijah does the right thing the right way. He prays that there's no rain. There is no rain. And now he's been sitting by this brook for a year to a year and a half. He's by himself. This brook, because there's no rain, is slowly getting smaller and smaller and just down to a trickle. And Elijah doesn't know when the Lord's going to move him on. He's just sitting there, being fed twice a day by a raven. And finally, God t tells him, okay, you've passed this test. You passed it with flying colors. Elijah, I believe, had a very teachable spirit. He was, had an authority and orientation of God. Therefore, he understood God's grace very, very well. He was just very, very lonely. So you think, okay, now he's going to go back into the population centers, everything's over, and it's going to be hunky-dory. Problem is, he's going now into enemy territory. Here's the test. Every day they drug becomes more, he passed that test. Uh, God promises to take care of him, but he never promises when he's going to change his situation. And now he tells him to go into Zarephath. Does anyone know where that is? I know some of you do. It's where Jezebel was from. Jezebel was married to Ahab. Ahab, king of Israel, made these political alliances with nations who were pagan. One of these nations was Phoenicia on the Mediterranean, the west side of Israel as you're facing the map. And as he made these alliances, he, his... Uh, basically got married off to Jezebel, one of the wickedest 
women who ever lived. If you doubt me, just try and think of a family member or friend or anybody you know who's ever named their daughter Jezebel. <laughs> I've never heard of one. The only person who was ever worse was, was their daughter. So he's making these political alliances, and with these political alliances, which were forbidden then, outside of the nation, outside of the faith, outside of the scripture, Jezebel comes in, she brings 450 prophets, and so Elijah is a wanted man. And now God is going to send him to minister to this widow in Zarephal, which is in the Phoenician district. So you would think, you know, okay, it's going to get better. No, it's going to get harder. And uh, he's already been by himself all of this time, and it's not just like he's going to go into, I don't know, Mission Hills, California, or a wealthy suburb of New York, or wealthy suburb of Lubbock, Texas. He's sending him to a, not a Jewish lady, but a Gentile lady who has zero. And he's got to do miracles just to keep her and her son alive, which he does. Well, this is a short service. We'll just cut a bunch out and end it, end it right here. But we need to remember this, I guess. Um, it's easy to trust the Lord when times are good. Uh, but it's directly proportionate to when times are bad as to maybe a, a verse that we've memorized or a passage that we've memorized or to have people close to us, like a church, that can encourage us as we go through this path uh, called life. And it's also understand, important, I believe, to understand God's logistical grace. Each and every day, as Elijah sits there by himself, it was worse going into Phoenician territory. Worse even than sitting by that brook all by himself. At least by the brook all by himself, the only thing he had to worry about was dying of thirst. And unless he had assurances that God was done with him, God is somehow either going to start the rain back up, which he wouldn't do because he prayed for you know, three and a half years and it hadn't been that long yet, or God's going to somehow get him through this. And each day he's watching that brook, again, shrink down to nothing until maybe he just had a tablespoon. Then God moves him. But at least by the brook, he knew because of God's direct word that he was in the very center of God's will. So apart from a diminishing supply of water, he's going to stay alive. And how did this work? Did you ever wonder, how, why did God use ravens? How did he use ravens? Where are they getting this bread and meat? What was this bread and meat? He never got sick. At least it doesn't say that he did. He made it through this year, year and a half, how long or however long he was by this brook. The famine was still going on after he left this brook. So God took care of him miraculously and Elijah could empirically see these miracles every single day, twice a day, when the raven came, ravens came and fed him. Logistics is a military term. It's talking about uh, supplying the front lines with supplies from headquarters. And the troops would bring it up, bring up the supplies to the soldiers on the front lines. Well, again, what Elijah realized was that his commander-in-chief was infinite. So the grace and the logistical grace to supply his needs 
was infinite. And as a band of brothers, I just think we need to remind each other of this. Because sometimes I forget. You know, you can sit in a body of believers like this with 150, however many of us are in this room, and uh, there's friends and family all around, and yet, even in, in a group, you can feel like you're alone. Because something's going on in your life, and you just feel like you're by yourself. Uh, people in ministry feel like that. We're hardly ever by ourselves, except for maybe a few hours in the morning, a few hours at night. We're always with someone, but we feel like we're by ourselves. Elijah felt like he was by himself. And God had to say, no, there's 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, it might have been a literal 7,000, or sometimes seven in the Bible is God's number that speaks of the whole. For instance, there's seven churches in Revelation that these, uh, you know, had their commendations and condemnations. And there were seven literal churches during that time to who the Revelation came to. But there was actually hundreds of churches during that time. So seven was just a number speaking of the whole of the church. And these are just things that we need to remember. We are a band of brothers. And we're not alone. Uh, I'm sure many of the Christians that are running right now in Iraq feel very alone. But we are related to them through the blood of our Savior. And we need to be praying for them because we are their band of brothers and they are asking for our prayers. I may have read this years ago, but if it's been years, you'll have forgotten anyway. I know it hasn't been recently, but it's one of my favorite uh, things in history. What time are we over? 30 seconds? Okay, this will be just 30 seconds. If you can. This is a true story, and it ministers to me. It's about Roman rest, uh, the, the group in the, uh, in the ancient world uh, in Rome who became Christians, Roman wrestlers. Any of you remember that? Oh, good, there's not very many hands. I'll just, I'll just read it because I can't remember it all. <clears throat> in the Roman army, there was a particular legion that were called the wrestlers. Uh, they took the best athletes in Rome and made them into a fighting unit. There came an edict from the emperor that Christianity was going throughout the empire and uh, subverting its belief system. So in other words, the head guys in Rome said, hey, this, this faith is coming through, it's, it's, it's taking us by storm, and you know, it's getting a little scary. Maybe we should do something. So the emperor thought, all the Christians should recant or die. And it became illegal to be a Christian in the ancient Roman world. And he thought he should start and make an example of the legions. His elite team, because of Christianity, had infiltrated the, mil the military. Vespasian was over the wrestlers. And they had a chant when they would go out to fight. We are wrestlers fighting for the emperor fighting to win for thee a crown. We are the wrestlers fighting for the emperor, fighting to win for thee a crown. That was their chant. Uh, <clears throat> and they took the legion and took, uh, took them before Vespasian, and he said, okay, in other words, this legion had to go before him, this legion of 40 wrestlers who were Christian, and they decided to make an example of him. Vespasian was their commander. 
And he said, uh, if any of you are Christians, come forward. Forty stepped forward. They had uh, become believers, and Vespasian demonstrated, uh, demanded that they recant their faith, but they wouldn't. And of course, as most commanding generals, he truly loved these men. These men, if he said jump, he, they would say how high. They, would go to, they were in battle with him, go to war with him. They probably would have given their lives for him, if need be. Uh, and when men do that for you, you, you love your men. You don't want them to die. You would do the same thing for them. So uh, he said, recant your faith or we will have to kill you by order of the emperor. They wouldn't recant, but he didn't have uh, the heart to kill them. So what he did was, was the dead in winter, and he marched them out to a frozen lake. And he made them strip naked and go out into the center of the lake. And then he built a roaring campfire on the edge. And, of course, the other legions are there watching all of this because the 40 Roman wrestlers were the example. And, remember, they were the elite. So if the nation was willing to kill the elite, if Vespasian was willing to kill the elite, the best that they had, then what would they do to the rest of them? Well, they marched out to the center of the lake and chanted, Forty wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and for the victor's crown. They sat upon that ice, and as the night grew, they chant, their chant grew weaker and fainter, but continued on into the wee hours of the night, barely audible. In the dead of the night, Vespasian saw one silhouette crawl out from the circle, make his way over to the fire, and sit down. He renounced his lord. Vespasian thought, well, great, maybe this will break the dike and, and my men will be saved. And he leaned forward and heard uh, the one lone wrestler chant, 39 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, winning for thee the victor's crown. And Vespasian was so overcome at such resolution that he took off his guard, stripped down naked, walked to the middle of the ice, and chanted 40 wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victor's crown. That was a band of brothers. And we are a band of brothers. Our ministry appreciates this church like I can't tell you. You minister to us. And I hope in the end that our ministry that you are a part of will glorify the Lord Jesus. I pray it will. We work very hard. Uh, a lot of good things are coming out of it. But we thank you for being here for us. And I hope and pray we are here for you to do whatever we can. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us. That you love us so much. You died for us when we were as yet sinners. You, Father, are our commander-in-chief. You are our shepherd. And we are... Hopefully, your soldiers, Christian soldiers, marching for thee, O Lord, to win for thee the victor's crown. I pray, Lord, that this body, this band of brothers, uh, takes to heart your love and grace for your church, that you walk among the landstands because you are intimately involved, intimately acquainted with our ways, you know what we, that what we do that is right. You know what we do when it's wrong. I pray, Father, as you give us breath, 
and let us serve you each day, that each day we would grow to love you more as our Father. Let us appreciate, Lord, uh, for we, <clears throat> eye has not seen, or ear has heard, nor has it entered the heart of man which you have prepared for us. Meaning our imagination is not capable of knowing what's ahead. And I am sure, I am convinced, Lord Jesus, that when we see you, whatever it is you, we went through down here, whether it eventually is even death or whatever kind of physical suffering we go through, uh, whatever it is that you ask us to do, when we see you, if you would say, was it worth it? We would say, <coughs> of course, Lord, it was. Thank you for choosing us and giving us the opportunity to serve you. And I just pray that we would realize what a close-knit group the minority is on planet Earth of those who know you and who you've elected to be your own. So let us serve you with passion, Lord. Let us love you above all else. In Jesus' name, amen.